0: corporate Democrats hurt the party and I think they need to be held accountable and I think the primary is the most effective way to do that thousands of progressives all over America are running for office this year many of us are women many of us for the first time
1: I love these photos. Love. I follow her on Instagram.
0: You follow Cynthia Nixon on Instagram? Yeah. What does yeah. she? Do I follow? No, I don't think so. There
1: was like on? a photo of her in the New York subway. She's like, I take the train every day. <laughs>
0: <laughs> remember when Hillary Clinton? Remember when Hillary Clinton went to New York, went to Manhattan, and she was like, I'm gonna take the subway because I'm just like everybody else. And she <laughs> tried to use the card, and it just would not. Fucking work. We just <laughs> happened, everyone, but like it was just particularly, but <laughs> just like, couldn't you like split it like seven times, dude? <laughs> it was She's, just like a not. <laughs>
1: the fuck is Hillary doing with herself I don't
0: know what she's doing that's a good question internet <laughs> what is Hillary Clinton doing Alexa where are you Alexa Siri, Alexa Alexandra what's the other one <laughs> there's three now <laughs> Cynthia Nixon was on Chapo Trap House and she was asked straight point blank like so, what kind of socialist are you? Like, mm. do you want to take the means of production? Or do you <laughs> want to have, like, a social democratic, welfare state kind of situation? And she was like, it was actually a good question. It was very direct. It was oh, very direct. Sure, it was sure. like, so, because it wasn't like, what is socialism for you? It was like, are, do you want to take the means of production? <laughs> and she was like, uh, I'm from, like, a Nordic model. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes hello nordic model is not socialism <laughs> which is like you
0: know i know how you guys are calling bernie sanders a socialist i mean didn't he say basically the same thing yeah, yeah but anyway yeah. um so she did say that and uh oh, she's okay. been in the unions and she was 12 years old oh and she talked about the unions a lot she talked about labor and she talked about winning contracts she talked she talked about how actors are usually uh (laughs) not gonna get paid very much unless they make it really big because you can make a killing but it's really hard to make a living how convenient now that a democrat can just say i'm gonna support the labor unions (laughs) yeah well you know she showed up on the picket line at columbia university during the grad student strikes and Oh, More like
1: that's her face of voters.
0: <laughs> she She's socialist now. She had a little cameo with, what's her name? I always forget that Latina girl's name. Cortez Al- Ocasio. Cortez. What's her name? Ocasio. Ocasio. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. Got it. Cortez
1: Ocasio-Cortez. Cortez. <laughs>
0: Ocasio- Ocasio- Ocasio-Cortez.
1: Ocasio- Cortez.
0: Ocasio-Cortez. Ocasio-Cortez. <laughs> Whoops. Sorry, guys. And so I do think that right now when we have this no-holds-barred, wild-west, hyper-capitalism, what that means is profit at any cost. Capitalism has not always existed in the world, and it will not always exist in the world. With an imprisoned Ignacio Lula de Silva, over 15 presidential candidates, and a foreseeable 43% rate of abstention, The press is keeping a close eye on Brazil's upcoming presidential elections. But what should socialists think? Laurie and I sit down with Alex Hochuli, a recent contributor to Jacobin Magazine on the Brazilian election. We break down some misconceptions about the so-called coup and get to the bottom of the socialist opposition to the Workers' Party.
2: Nossos ancestrais lutaram pela liberdade Contra tudo e contra todos, o negro nunca foi covarde Fugiu das senzalas, refugiou-se nos quilombos Conquistou a liberdade, mas em busca da igualdade Ainda sofre alguns tombos
1: Ok, hello everybody, I'm here with Alexa Chuli uh, who's living in Brazil right now. He's a researcher and a writer based in Sao Paulo and host of his own podcast called Afibunga Bunga. Is that right way of pronouncing it, Alex?
3: That works.
1: Okay. The podcast focuses on global politics and the end of the end of history. Welcome to the show.
3: Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I was in Brazil and I should have seen you when I was in Sao Paulo. How did you end up in Brazil?
3: I mean, I've got a background in Brazil. I was born here. I'm half Brazilian, half Swiss, but grew up in Europe. And then I decided to move here, a decision I don't regret.
1: There's definitely a lot happening in Brazil. Besides the elections, there seems to be a whole bunch of political and economic turmoil. On top of like social and cultural shit hitting the fan, like the museum Uh, like, burnt down to ash.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's... I think this is one of these real sort of symbolic moments, which in in and of itself it's already bad enough because these uh this is the sort of you know this would be the equivalent of the british museum or something like that yeah and uh, with a lot of you know priceless artifacts and was um the royal palace as well so it's like it's like buckingham palace and the british museum burned down in one at once oh my God. and this was and this was a tragedy that was foretold because it's had massive budget cuts which actually already started under the workers party Uh, Mm -hmm. government in in 2014, 2015, uh, with the initial sort of austerity measures, but has been massively accelerated under the post-coup government of Michel Temer. And they've been begging for funds, and uh, they obviously weren't fire ready, and all these things happened, where... um, There were many, you know, indications that this kind of thing could happen. There's actually been several other museums in Brazil, which over the past uh, decade have burnt down, all of which Mm. raise questions about, you know, about funding. And I mean, you guys know the art world better than I do, but, uh, and then that kind of... No,
1: yeah, it's a big topic. But it does
3: seem to be in a situation of, of crisis, I mean, of, of kind of interlocking and mutually compounding crises, social, economic, and political, uh, that the burning down of this museum, which should be something which, I mean, just in, in pure budgetary terms is not that hard to fund, um, and Brazil has entirely the capacity to do so, um, should allow it to to burn down in this way. And I, in some ways it does encapsulate uh, both the kind of sense from... Uh, certain sections in Brazil, which are constantly downbeat on on Brazil, um, kind of feeling that it's perennially incapable of developing, um, but at the same time, always end up supporting policies which are which run against any possibility for development. So you kind of see this in uh, in even the reaction to the museum burning down, which is that ah well, you see, it should have sought out more private funding, uh, it should have all been privatized. This is what, what happens when you let the state run things which just ends up compounding the problem uh and you know you have with, you have this the cycle of uh of austerity withdrawal of funding worsening services mm-hmm. feeding further demands for privatization and that kind of vicious cycle which um i mean north america and europe has experienced over the past 40 years is something that um, is particularly acute in brazil right now almost as if they aren't paying attention to the fact that these policies have failed in the north
1: but the interesting thing is that a lot of these defunding to culture, did you said you just said I think right? It came from the Workers Party itself.
3: It did, yeah, and and that's a sort of um, a sort of contradiction and ambiguity which runs through, I guess, a lot of what we might discuss over the next couple of minutes. Um, with regard to contemporary Brazil, um, that some of the... that it did... that the Workers' Party rule did to a certain extent sow the seeds for its own destruction. Um, Though when I say that, I wouldn't want to absolve the Brazilian right of any blame for anything because they are ultimately culpable for... um, the state that brazil finds itself in today so
0: what do you mean by that because i would like to i would like to unpack that statement that the workers party did itself in let's get into
1: the luda thing like so what led to luda's the quote-unquote coup that people refer to and his eventual arrest of
3: course okay well i think the best way to start with this is to do a potted history i mean normally the way when i try to explain to people who aren't familiar with brazil kind of what the hell's going on is to start with 2013 and so the past five years has been a whole period of crisis and the current period is initiated with june 2013 so if you'll remember back in june 2013 there was this explosion of protest all across brazil which initially started with um quite localized protests mainly in sao paulo and rio Oh, the olympics it was, well. No, that's the interesting thing is it came well before that. So you basically had ten years of Workers Party government, a very moderate government which maintained orthodox macroeconomic management with some sort of pro-poor social policies, ra- ra- raising minimum wages, but without any real structural transformations in the economy. At the same time, you actually have a lot of deindustrialization, but you also have a lot of formalization of of the workplace. So you have a lot of formalization of service sector workers and. Rising incomes, rising standards of living, but mainly based around increasing credit and private consumption. So, I mean, at 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 a mass level, people's expectations were raised, but probably things like public services didn't keep speed with that. And so you get this explosion of protests, which initially is around demands for free public transport uh, for the democratization and access to the city that gets repressed by the police and it explodes into a much wider movement uh, and really quite um, cross-class, cross-ideological, a whole range of new actors coming into the streets as a crowd right so it's not formalized any political sense it it lacks any leadership and this really takes everyone by surprise I mean if you want to kind of imagine what this is like the world has become sensitized to these sorts of explosions of popular protest over the past couple of years because they've happened in various different forms across the world but we should be able to identify them right if you talk about the indiganados in Spain or Occupy or the Gezi Square in Turkey these are all we can yeah we can can kind of identify the the contours of this kind of thing, but they all end up going in different directions, right? And the direction that it took in Brazil was initially um, anti-political um, or post-political, depending on on your terminology, which is to say that it rejected representation, right? They don't represent us, which could be incipiently a kind of revolutionary demand or revo- you know point in a mm-hmm. revolutionary direction, but at the same time it could also point to a a, a direction of anti-politics of depoliticization. Yeah or indeed towards ultra-politics, which is to say uh, the desire for force, for authoritarian solutions to problems, um, which is something that we're seeing today. And we're going to come back to that, I think. But so as as this goes on, and this in it, june two thousand and thirteen initiates a whole wave of protests, so suddenly Brazil, which hadn't seen a huge amount of protest over the preceding decades um actually it was the last time it happened was some anti corruption protest uh, at the beginning of the 90 s to impeach a corrupt president, and preceding that the demands for for the returns of of direct elections at, at the end of the dictatorship so you know you've got a period of um of, of you know, nearly 20 years without a lot of mass protests. And so this initiates a whole cycle of, of protests. And so you get into 2014 and you have all these sorts of protests around the World Cup, some saying we don't want the World Cup here, others saying we need to radicalize uh, protests around demanding better hospitals and schools and public services. Um, so they, again, pointing in sort of different directions.
1: Well, it began with the, the bus fares. The mayors were reelected. And as soon as they, they assumed office, they raised bus fares in Rio and Sao Paulo, you know? And that got people really pissed off. It's like they're being tricked, you know? It's not about only 20 cents. It's about everything. It's about how quality of life sucks in Rio and in Sao Paulo in the big cities. Big events such as the World Cup and the Olympics have part of it because people are seeing like how many money is spent for the World Cup. You know, It's already the most expensive World Cup
3: of history. Over the course of this period, slowly the right is able to assume leadership over these protests. So by the time you get to 2015, they have coalesced into a narrow demand against corruption, right? And we can get into what that exactly means, because you know everyone's against corruption, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, No one's in favor of it.
1: (laughs) All that America is consumed by corruption, politics too, and anti-corruption, right? And there's a sort
3: of um, a sort of common sense anti-corruption, which is. I don't want to have to pay pay bribes to get, you know, get through bureaucracy. Um, you know, I see big businesses get favoritism by connections to politicians. No one's in favor of that. Everyone's against that. Okay, but what are your political solutions to it? And then that points in very different ideological directions. Um, what happens in Brazil is that anti-corruption becomes a way of attacking the workers' party specifically, um, and as a consequence, the left as a whole, because it's a way of ultimately delegitimizing... State action, um, and in a more specific sense, attacking the nexus between that had developed between the Workers Party and certain sections of capital in Brazil, specifically uh, the internal bourgeoisie or the domestic bourgeoisie. So this is like agribusiness, meat packers, uh, construction companies, and so on. So all this is going on, right? So you've got these anti-corruption protests, which have been sort of colonized or channeled uh, by the right in their favor against the Workers Party. At the same time, you've got beginning earlier on the huge uh anti-corruption investigations called lavajato or car wash right which uh, really puts a bomb under the whole political system it it brings to national prominence a regional judge sergio moro who becomes the idol of the kind of anti-corruption right he's like harvard educated it's been advised by the state department of the u.s justice department and you know there's various conspiracy theories around that um which I don't agree with, which I don't believe in, but uh, but they're there. You know, there's a certain section of the Brazilian left who, which thinks that this whole process of these protests and of the anti-corruption investigations is just a U.S.-led plot or coup uh, against the Workers' Party. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, you know, okay. I, I would say that for starters, the Brazilian bourgeoisie is fully capable of undertaking this soft coup itself. <laughs> um, two, it's a way of completely exculpating the Workers' Party um, from at least creating the conditions for the coup. I don't think it was responsible for it. But, you know, it got into bed with some nasty people and uh, they turned around in bed and kicked him out of bed. That happens, you know, Yeah. Uh, if you lie with dogs, you get fleas and that kind of thing. So um, so just to finish the the kind of quick history up till now, so you've got the anti-corruption investigations, which are mainly targeting the Workers' Party, which has been in government now for 12 years, you know, them looking at 2015, um, and the big street protests, which are led by new social movements, which portray themselves as anti-corruption and non-party, non-partisan,
2: mm-hmm.
3: and as liberal. Liberal in the more European sense rather than the American sense So you know, economic liberals. But they over a short period of time, uh, demonstrate themselves to be very tightly imbricated with establishment political parties and defending increasingly conservative uh, claims, you know, uh, the kind of pursuing the kind of cultural Marxist stuff, right? (laughs) So they go around excusing, uh, they tried to shut down a, I think it was an art gallery. Yeah,
1: it was an art exhibition, sexuality show. Exactly,
3: yeah, and calling it all the kind of cultural Marxist coup or whatever
1: i guess the real issue is like so what is the big issue with this election like lula is running for president not running for president. what the hell is happening no he's
0: not running because the courts have decided that he cannot run even though apparently there was a u.n decision that supported lula running for president yeah, but they've been saying that for months
3: yeah so i mean th- what's basically happened is that the workers party has been trying to extend this process of litigation for as long as possible, knowing probably quite well that it won't have a it won't doesn't have a chance of Lula really standing. The latest is that the the electoral court the Supreme Electoral Tribunal has barred him from running. They're going to lodge a special appeal at the Supreme Court uh, in the next days. But the realistic, you know, 99% Lula is not going to be able to run, or if, he's, if his name is on the ballot, he's not going to be president. The Workers' Party want is that, because Lula remains incredibly popular, albeit divisive, that he's able to nominate the, his vice president, former Sao Paulo mayor Fernando Haddad to be his, you know, who's his running mate now, to be the presidential candidate for the Workers' Party, and that Lula is able to usher over his loyal voters onto him, which, if he's successful in doing so, it means that Haddad will reach the second round uh, runoff, probably against the far-right, Jair Bolsonaro. And so, you know, keeping Lula's name on the ballot guarantees that voters who aren't familiar with Haddad or are skeptical of him uh, would vote for the Workers' Party anyway, because Lula's name's there and like, because that's an automatic choice for them.
0: The way that I've been listening to this story is through these left podcasts and how people are talking about it is as a sort of forcing, forcing a coup against this pink tide that's you know, sweeping Latin America. And so there's a kind of like anti-imperialist bent to the narrative that's being told. And mm-hmm. I want to understand like in what way is the Workers' Party being held by the left as an ally or as something that should be held up against this, you know, so-called Brazilian Trump or if it's simply a matter of projection to the Workers' Party, like why is this the narrative of the Workers' Party?
3: Right, so I mean, the the bit I didn't get up to, which is the most important bit, which was the the illegitimate impeachment of Juma Hussef in twenty sixteen. So all these street protests lead up to kind of give force to that movement. Basically, the Brazilian bourgeoisie has decided to turn against the Workers Party, with whom it had worked up till now, mm-hmm. um, and. Decides to break with it and impeach her um, on completely flimsy grounds. And you could say, well, look, it was kind of a moderate left, you know, kind of center left government, um, which uh, wasn't really threatening the Brazilian bourgeoisie. So the fact that there was the, the impeachment was kind of dodgy. Well, it should it's just a palace coup, right? It's just a palace coup. Um, why should we talk about it in terms of like coup or um, overturning a left-wing government and whatever? I think the reason that it's a coup is not just the impeachment itself, but the whole process around it. So the Brazilian center-right had tried and failed to win the presidency four elections in a row. When it lost in 2014, it could not believe that it had lost again and that its neoliberal program had been rejected once again. Uh, So it tried to... Find any means necessary of getting rid of the Workers' Party, getting them out of office, uh, and they settle on impeachment as a as a convenient uh, as a convenient means. They that wasn't even their first choice, but it's what they happened upon. So it what, the whole this whole thing isn't premeditated. It's not some big plot led by the U.S. Justice Department or the State Department or the CIA. That's not correct what is correct is that they did have a desire to get rid of the of the Workers' Party and that it was a coup because even from uh, its own kind of orchestrator's mouths, they've admitted that, you know, there's secret rec- recordings which were leaked of them saying, we need to get her out because we need to stop the bleeding, i.e. we need to get them out to stop the anti-corruption investigations reaching us. She refuses to protect us, so mm-hmm. we need to mm-hmm. get her out. Um, so it, there's a hell of a lot of dodginess there. And, you yes. know... These are Workers' Party's former coalition partners who turn against her, so who turn against the Workers' Party as a whole. So That's
0: really important to highlight because, you know, when you were talking about the relationship between the Workers' Party and the Brazilian bourgeoisie, you know, it's like, well, and to some extent, the Workers' Party candidates became part of the rackets of the Brazilian bourgeoisie. And when they didn't want to play, things got a bit ugly
3: yeah that's it basically I mean it's there, there is a complicity there and the Brazilian radical left has been critical of that uh, for a long time I mean certainly throughout the you know the majority of the 2000s certainly from the middle of the 2000s onwards um, it's always been very critical of of the pts accommodation with the existing structures of Brazilian democracy, quote unquote, you know, to a certain extent, it it falls foul of its own because, you know, the the Workers' Party was founded in part as sort of the ethical party. It was something which, you know, it was the last great social democratic party founded in the world. It was quite innovative in terms of form of uniting um, left-wing Catholics, former Marxist revolutionaries, mm. uh, the kind of syndicalists and wor- um, labor unions and new social movements. And it, it eventually kind of, um, you know, became a, ...ossified and bureaucratized and over its period in power it really demobilized its own base... So when the kind of the coup did happen, it's notable that the masses didn't exactly rise up to defend the Workers' Party in government. Mm. Also because, you know, they had implemented austerity measures in Dilma's second government, like t- from 2014 onwards, she starts some very severe austerity measures, which massively increases unemployment. So, you know, they weren't people weren't especially disposed to come out and defend her or her government. To come back to the Brazilian right, what's interesting is that so it's the kind of center right who are the leading architects of this movement to get. The Workers' Party out of office, which, and also a kind of broader mood, which is called which is anti-Workers' Party sentiment, but which really can be broadened out to hostility to the left as such. And they think they're going to win out of this, right? So they've got the Workers' Party out of government. They're able to, this unelected government is able to push through some of the harshest sort of austerity and neoliberal measures anywhere in the world, including a 20-year cap on public spending, which Mm. would absolutely, Mm -hmm. which would and is absolutely gutting health and education spending and all the rest. Um, A real disaster, you know, I mean... Mm-hmm. really, I don't think it's too exaggerated to say that these people want to take Brazil back to the 19th century. Well,
0: through privatization, you mean?
3: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, mm. it's it's kind of the rule of the slaveocracy. So the only good thing about this is that they have ended up falling foul of the of the mood that they themselves have created. So the Brazilian establishment center-right is really struggling, and they're going to have very, a lot of difficulty uh, uh, to win the presidency this time around because their own base has shifted much more further to the right, to the sort of ultra-politics, mm. the sort of um, authoritarian politics of Jair Bolsonaro, which people compare to Trump. I think that's incorrect. I mean, I think comparing him to the Philippines Duterte is much more appropriate.
0: You said that the radical left in Brazil has... An ongoing critique of the Workers Party through all of this. What do they think should be done?
3: Well, the radical left is very fragmented in Brazil. Um, I mean, I guess that's something that could be said around the world these days. Um, yeah. <laughs> so it's it's not a especially novel, but it, you get different positions. So the the kind of the largest Trotskyist grouping, the PSTU had what I think is a bad position on on the coup, which is to say that they kind of turned a, a blind eye to it. They supported the anti-corruption investigations mm. and saw... The, the move against the Workers' Party is you know, just a sort of intra-bourgeois conflict, a palace coup, um, and not seeing in it an attack on the left as such mm-hmm. and as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that was incorrect. But, you know, then there's other sections which are like the like PESOL, which is uh, the Party of Socialism and Liberty, which was a break-off from the Workers' Party in the mid-2000s, was a kind of a more radical left-wing break-off from the Workers' Party, which, Uh, is standing in a candidate in the election, uh, Guilherme Boulos, who's, it's quite interesting, he's uh, emerged as the leader of the most dynamic social movement in Brazil, which is the the homeless workers movement. Mm -hmm. They have kind of, so it's a kind of an attempt to join up PSOL, which has a couple of congressmen and uh, so on, with the homeless workers movement to kind of build its base. Um, but so far, you know, polling 1% or something like that. And their position generally is that they defend the Workers' Party against the kind of legalized persecution of the party, while at the same time trying to propose a more radical um, reform agenda, I suppose.
1: What are you expecting to happen with the elections sort or of how, like, what's the left seeing happening beyond the elections, right? Beyond these, like... Uh, sort of like the crisis of all these bourgeois politics beyond right? the like, fights of the bourgeois rackets <laughs> yeah. yeah but also what might have the left this left be thinking uh, beyond them and after them
3: okay so I mean just quickly on the left the left as a whole has been was completely first of all blindsided by the June 2013 protests some sections positioned, its, positioned themselves much more in favor of it others more moderate sections the around the workers party were much more hostile to the protests mm. but the general point is that they were completely caught by surprise and weren't able to assume leadership over them and in general the whole protest wave and the kind of taking of the masses to the streets has sort of blindsided the left the whole convulsive period has left the radical left in a difficult situation a very ambiguous situation of not wanting to defend the Workers' Party and wanting to propose more radical solutions and more radical approaches, while at the same time needing to defend, not necessarily the Workers' Party, but defend democracy against the attacks against it, be they in the forms of uh, of the new right or of the sort of anti-corruption investigations which seek to de- delegitimize left politics. So that leaves the left in a very ambiguous situation. Mm -hmm. In terms of the election as a whole, it's extremely fragmented. I mean, there's 13 candidates running for for president. And so the nice sort of center-left, center-right alternation that you've Mm -hmm. had in Brazil from the 90s, 2000s, and early 2010s has disappeared. The far-right candidate, Jair Bolsonaro, basically his ceiling is 20%. He'll make it to the second round. But I don't think it's very likely that he wins. But there's a constituency there. There's a base there which isn't going away. And that sort of new radical right, the sort of ultra-politics, the demand for uh, law and order solutions to basically arming the population as a way of dealing with violent Mm -hmm. crime.
1: So there's no end inside of all of this madness, Obviously, the solution is not going to come from the left, like the left is freaking dead. But right with the Mexican elections, with AMLO, there's this sense of like, with AMLO, things are going to restabilize. But right now, Brazil feels like it's in some sort of political freefall. Oh
3: yeah, there's no. I mean, there's no stabilization in the near future. The mm. th- I, the only candidate which really represents a return to normality in big quotation marks would be the Workers Party. And I think it's kind of ridiculous that the Brazilian bourgeoisie doesn't support the Workers Party because it could provide it with a cloak of legitimacy, <laughs> unlike any of the of its other candidates.
0: I hope the socialists see that, though, because, right, defending the Workers' Party is precisely defending the candidate that makes the bourgeoisie respectable, right? I mean, that's what it sort of amounts to, and that's what it means to defend democracy these days.
3: Yeah, but uh, but on the other hand, the, the Brazilian right is so anti-democratic that it leaves it in a position of, of kind of default supporting the Workers' Party. But in any case, whoever wins will inherit a position which is pretty ungovernable, a very hostile and conservative congress um mm. Uh, mm. and a situation i mean fundamentally economically of no real growth on the horizon either so right. uh, and you know mass unemployment and so on so mm. it's not it's not a solution which uh, someone's going to sweep in and be able to stabilize things immediately
0: yeah thank
1: you alex
3: my pleasure i enjoyed it there's
1: so much more to talk about but
3: we're gonna have to leave it there. thanks guys bye <laughs>
2: Dela. Ela é o meu amor E eu sou o amor todinho dela Chega, Na lua prateada se esconder
0: Chances are that if you don't live under a rock, you've heard of Afrofuturism. But what is this new aesthetic movement, and what does it say about the present? My co-host, Loya Rojas, Audrey Crescenti, and I will talk about Afrofuturism in the arts, music, and popular culture, including a review of HBO's new show, Random Acts of Flyness. We include clips from artist Frances Bodomo, the late leader of the Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, and Sun Ra. Stay tuned, and get your learn on.
1: So Afrofuturism seems to be everywhere now, even though it's kind of like a 90s phenomenon, especially since Black Panther it has gone total mainstream, and it seems to be everywhere. Definitely in art world, in art exhibitions with artists, a lot of young artists in their 30s are dealing with Afrofuturism and yeah so what the hell is this concept everything that's happening with Afrofuturism what,
0: what are the who are the artists that you're talking about?
1: Juliana Huxtable is a sort of queer trans black artist who does a lot of stuff that relates to sort of sci-fi and also takes reference from this very important sci-fi writer um, Octavia Butler mm-hmm. she seems, seems to keep J-D. coming up in a lot of the stuff um, but yeah, the, the film Afronauts by Francis Bodomo was at the Whitney Biennial and whatever, I don't know, a year ago, two years ago. Yeah, I guess it was last, last year. year. Last year, And it's a short, spectacular, fascinating film that just kind of struck me. And
0: it's... the That little film that we saw at the Whitney Biennial, it's based on a true story, actually, this attempt by... People in Africa. I want to say it's it was Zambia. I forget now. It was during the space race. They were attempting to put someone on the moon before the Russians and the Americans did. So the sixties. Sixty four. She said sixty four. Sixty four. Yeah. So that's the backstory. The film. It's like a short. It's a short film, and you just see this like person of African descent with uh, some kind of astronaut outfit, uh, right? And she's kind of walking slowly and sort of meditatively. Um, she's preparing herself to take off onto space. Yeah, she's preparing herself for takeoff. So, I mean, the obvious theme with Afrofuturism is the relationship between black people and technology. That's like the running, the running problem. Or right. the running
1: definition is that it's the intersection of black cultures, the imagination, liberation, and technology with a touch of mysticism. I just looked up a few, like, Afrofuturism historians, and this exact definition came up, like, three times at least. Should have mm. started
2: with
4: that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was like,
4: <laughs> well, is is Afrofuturism just, like, black people in space? Like, what is it? Does it have to do with, the, like, the fact that, like, people think because of, like, uh, poverty and that sort of thing that black people have some kind of uh, black americans i don't know is it like all black people have some kind of fraught relationship with technology or something and they're trying to overcome what is it what is it really about
0: originally like you mentioned octavia butler who's a science fiction writer and also this black queer science fiction writer um samuel delaney and the way that they talked about it is this is like before you know this whitney Biennial stuff like these writers who are dealing with like literature and science fiction specifically, this reconfiguration of the black body and progress and technological advancement um, and a way of like recapturing some kind of technological advance like beyond capitalism. At least some of them talk about it this way. But uh, in close, there was a girl named Mata Mwambwa. She was chosen to be the astronaut because he was like the first Human on Earth was an African woman, and the first human on the moon should be an African woman. And um, he was sent her up. He was going to send her up with 12 cats and a missionary. He had like this whole. We're going to go to the moon. Like we're going to want. We're going to have this blank slate. <laughs> like there's almost too much pain here. At, coming out at the very end of like the colonial era in Zambia, there's so much pain here. That impulse to run. That impulse to go. That impulse to dream and just like um, start anew. Um, but then coupled with the physics of gravity <laughs> or like, the, like the, the reality of like an economic situation and the inability to go and how those things play against each other. But it also like, it's that, but then it also has like a lot of cosmology stuff in it. So it has like this mm, myth-making kind of aesthetic where like a lot of the things that are coming out lately will have goddesses and like, and right, like it's the
1: superpowers and superheroes it's
0: kind of like yeah and like this new mythos like a new origin story right like the the more obvious interpretation being that black people are an extraterrestrial race and that thus they need to like imagine themselves as something completely other from human um and that this opens up this like potential or something I was going to say, all I know about that idea is uh, we have
4: a couple former Black Panthers in the, from the Black Panther Party, original Black Panther Party, here in um, Oakland, in Berkeley. And we had um, Gerald Smith, he came to our reading group recently, and he was telling us about when his dad used to take him to go see Malcolm X in Oakland uh, when he was younger, and he would say that the first half was great because it was all politics, You know, he and his dad were both really into it and um, got pretty hyped, you know. And then the second half, it got into religion or as he would say, like the kooky stuff. And at one point, you know, Malcolm's sitting there talking about the mothership coming and taking all the black people away, you know, to another planet or whatever. And uh and you know they just thought it was ridiculous and they would they would like laugh about it.
2: I am the mothership connection. Get down in 3D. Light groove group. All right. You hear the noise ain't nobody but me and the boy. Get down. hit it,
1: fellas. Oh, the white man go to the moon. Well, when he see
2: What's on Mars, he won't see no mark of his. It's our Mars, our people, so God have taught me.
1: And they look something similar to us, not exactly, but they look similar. They're walks on two feet, and they're not white folks.
2: Hustle on over here.
4: kind of connected for me the uh, parliament, funkadelic, like uh, mothership sort of trope. Right. Which I, I didn't actually know about um, before then, so I didn't actually connect that. Um, Sun Ra and like uh, parliament, I guess it'd be considered like right. Afrofuturist musician. Yeah, there
2: is a message in uh, all of my music. It's all about uh, people doing something else other than what they have done, because what they have done is the possible. And the world the way it is today is the results of the possible that they did. It's a results of the absolute thing. Uh, so now that's something else. There's always something else in a universe as big as this.
0: Yeah, like the people that are referenced are Sun Ra as well as uh, Basquiat and Ralph Ellison. So these are kind of like. So Basquiat, because he takes the black body, he takes like what notions of ideas of traditional like black masculinity and like makes them alien. Uh, Ralph Ellison for Invisible Man, if it's like surrealist qualities, the use of like rapid non sequitur uh, uh, use of time and these kinds of things. And Sun Ra, <laughs> and sunrise is a big one because they love the fact that he wants to convince everyone that he's from Saturn. Um, (laughs) he's an extraterrestrial being
1: but time the sort of the play with time and history is also something that I think keeps coming up like time is a bit distorted and as does it seems to also often refer to like trying to rewrite like history like one of this critic Mark Derry and he's the
0: one coined the term right Pam? Mark Derry is this uh, critical theorist who has a series of interviews titled Black to the Future um, and their interviews with the science fiction writer Samuel L. Delaney and then Greg Tate and Trisha Rose, um, where this stuff comes up.
1: Yeah, but the question interesting with him that I that stood out to me is that he asked, can a community whose past has been deliberately erased imagine possible futures?" So this is kind of the futurism, sort of the, cl- the sort of looking towards the future because you can't rewrite the past or something. Um, that there's and that sort of brings forth like the way you play with that is by playing with like how time plays out in in the films at least and the art that I've seen at least it seems time itself is like uh, flexible.
0: Oh, maybe we could talk about it in terms of this new show. So I've been watching this HBO show called right. Random Acts of Flyness, and it was like tucked away at the midnight slot on a Friday night. I was I was like, what is this? And then all of a sudden I saw this...
2: blackface. Blackface. Blackface.
0: Footage, this like montage of this Black Panther footage, uh, the Black Panthers, not as in the movie, the Black Black Panther, but the actual Black Panthers of Fred Hampton's blood-soaked mattress with like a Lennon book on it. At
2: the time, I was eight and a half to nine months pregnant. My baby was to be delivered in
0: two weeks, pigs kept on shoot. And then it just like cut away to some interview with like black people in the 1970s talking about the cops and then it like cut away to some claymation and then it cut away to like a space galaxy and then it cut away to this guy on a bike and I was like what the hell is this show? Um, if you guys haven't seen it out there, so the way that HBO describes it, you can really tell that they don't have a way of talking about it because the way that they describe it is a unique mix of verité documentary, musical performances, surrealist melodrama, and humorous animation, which aims to showcase the quote beauty and ugliness of contemporary American life. And the the guy, the turnstance, the creator has. Has called it like an attempt to be avant garde without being too experimental because he wants like a mainstream audience. But the reason why it reminded me of this as you were talking about time is that a lot of what happens in the show, so there is this like kind of kooky, like futuristic stuff, but then a lot of it is actually interweaving this historical footage from the 70s and the 60s, I guess. Black Panther footage from back in the day. Um, and it's like reconfigured, and then there's like a skit about an app called Bitch Better Have My Money, which is a way of getting reparations from white people.
2: Simply put, our technology allows black users whose ancestors have been enslaved to locate and match with the white families whose ancestors enslaved them. Now, once a match is made, we make it very simple for you. Payments can be made anonymously through the app. Or, if the black lender and the white debtor agree, they can meet up in person at the nearest ATM or notary public.
1: I guess also it's like, okay, right. It's not like necessarily, a, like, is it, a, are these things a critique of society? Like, is that this Methodist Standless, like a new form of like black critique? Like, is that what this is?
0: I mean, it's popular culture, right? So it's, I think it's like, Showing us something—it's like grappling with the present in some way. I don't think it's critical. Um, It's—if anything—it's like affirming a kind of confusion, right? It's like there's like Black Panther footage, and then there's like a whole skit about how Michelle Obama is like a black goddess coming from outer space, and like the two exist side by side without without any problem. Michelle Obama's is God. God. And I started, I was like, does everyone love this show? Like, is there like a critique of the show? And so, you know, all the white people in Variety are like, this is the most exemplary, like black aesthetics, blah, 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 blah. I was like, I really want to hear someone that does not like the show. So I started looking on podcasts and there's a podcast called The Black Girls Broadcast. And, you yeah, know, this just like some average, like middle class black girls, like reviewing pop culture and they were reviewing the show and they really, really didn't like it. And they had this conservative response to it. Especially this skit, which I actually think is was the best one. Um, there's a skit in the first episode in the pilot called Everybody Dies. Take
2: my hand, walk through the door, and you'll live in this world no more. There, there, kids. There, there. Everybody dies.
0: It was written by Francis Bodomo, yeah. and it's this black woman. She's she's supposed to be death, and at one point in the skit, she beats a child inside a black plastic bag in in the segment called Whack a Soul, rather and it's like all really dark and like really weird and she's like bringing in the black children into her her little space and getting them to go through the other door that says death like from life to death whatever right and these women on the podcast were like well we thought that that woman should have been white and then it would have made more sense and she wasn't and so we don't get it like we don't get like what is it supposed to be they really like the white thoughts skit uh it's a with skin, John Ham with John Ham, yeah, that made no sense to me. I kind of
4: passed out at that point, and then I kind of woke up, and I all of a sudden I was like looking at the screen, and I was like, Why is Don Draper shaming white people about the hijab? Yeah, <laughs> I didn't get what was going
0: on well, that was his white thought, right? His yeah. white thought in the bubble yeah. was, I would never live in a country where women are forced to cover up or something like this, and then he puts that black face pomade on his temples, and he's curator of his uh uh, albinitis <laughs> um, <laughs> but what's interesting about that skit is that at the end of the skit there's like these moments where the fourth wall is broken like again and again and at the end of the skit it's Terrence Nance on his computer and he's watching the footage he's watching the recordings of Don Hamm and he's like looking stuff and he gets like a message from his I think partner co-worker and she's just like oh hey I'm just looking at this footage right now but uh, I don't know about this. Why are we talking about white people so much? We should just like make some black stuff." And then he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. And then that's how the skit ends. I think that the women that were like responding positively to that white thought skits, cause they actually liked that one. They were like, that was hilarious. That made sense to us. They didn't even pay attention to the end. Cause for them, it was just like too weird or something. But the end is what makes the skit worthwhile, because at least at the end, there's some sense of confusion about what the hell he's doing with this show.
1: And it puts it into the show, which I think is the yeah the good moment of at least sort of like attempting to have some self-reflection on the work itself. There's these weird moments throughout where you think you're being taken down a certain like road, only to have that like hit you in the face and then go somewhere else, I feel. So did you guys like it? I did. I was fascinated. I was like both like the sort of the what, yeah what I called like art house, like the avant garde, like the experimental, like with multiple like cinematic genres mixing in. Like I felt like it was really drawing upon some sort of like more contemporary, even like post internet art. Um, but it was this sort of I think repulsion and attraction, like again what yeah. I called the push pull thing, that kept me hugged uh, enough. To sort of be like very curious and also yeah, it's just this so also like Pam said like this is on HBO. It's kind of surprising. They have
4: funnier Die on Funnier Die is like kind of montage style and absurd. I mean they've had a they've had a lot of like random weird
0: shows on HBO for years now. Yeah, the so, absurd,
1: so. third But it has like a new sincerity. Mm.
0: Like yeah, it also yeah it it actually like it does include absurd shit, but it also is like trying to give you knowledge or some shit.
1: Like it's I think it's the genre of art infotainment like that's what I think it is and I think that that's what's happening a lot lately with like things on television or web series it's this art infotainment this is just like black art infotainment or black or art black infotainment I don't know.
2: The whiteness virus targets healthy culturally and ethnically specific cells Italian Irish Scandinavian etc and what have you. The Alvinaitis then attacks and destroys any cultural or ethnic specificity using an arsenal of fake holidays, 17th century aristocratic class warfare, the one-drop rule, and Elvis. Mm -hmm. Luckily, we have a cure. White beyond.
1: The point is, like, why is this happening now? Why are these being like, really, really, like, okay, so Afrofuturism begins from the 90s, but it actually has had some sort of, like, revival in the last three to... Four years, like maybe more, especially since like the release of Black Panther, the it's movie become mainstream. It's become super mainstream, and yeah, because it is, I guess, a post Black Lives Matter phenomenon. If we put it somewhere like in like the 2015 2016 sort of like revival stage, right? It doesn't. It takes more than a year to make like a Marvel film. Right? So what really is kinda of like the cost, the reason, right, this moment? Is it the disappointment with like post Obama? Is that like too much of a stretch? Or is it something else?
0: Well, I mean in some rudimentary way it's this attempt to claim a category of such a thing called black aesthetics. Right? Okay. Like black people making black art. Right? Like that was the whole deal with Black Panther too, right? Like only I didn't watch Black Panther. Sorry. I'm not sorry. (laughs) It's on my list. (laughs) Um, But, like, wasn't the whole thing that it was, like, by black people with black people?
1: Yes, main characters, yeah.
0: Right, some shit like that, right? And this is also, like, giving us a similar message, right? Like, fuck the white people. We're not standing on them. Let's just make black art for us kind of thing. Mm. Um, And it's, like, the black people are going to talk now or something like this. Like, it is attempting, I think, to reappropriate at some level, even though not, like, directly, but, like, this sort of... The black power kind of stuff, right? Like, black is beautiful. Yeah. Like, um, these kinds of things. But it's more confused, and it's kind of fucking with it. and Playful. Experimental.
4: Isn't it just, like, hearkening back to the aesthetic that emerged during, like, black separatism? When, which black separatism? Just after, like, what the Panthers ended up turning into. Like, Bobby... I mean, that's sort of the... That's where they started out. But, I mean, Bobby Steele was, like... Uh, you know, he kicked out Carmichael, Stokely Carmichael, people once they were separatists, you know, once they said that white people, their whiteness was conflated with like capitalism and they could never be truly revolutionary. And he said, Bobby Steele told us, he's like, he kick those people out. They're getting, getting in the way of my coalition building. I remember at one point he said something about, you know, you can wear like a, and C color-themed dashiki or something, but you're still going to have your same shitty job. You're still going to, like, mm-hmm. be beat by the cops or something, mm-hmm. you know? Like, it's not real change. It's just, like, this very superficial aesthetic that he saw emerging. But it just seems like it's all just a repetition of that. It's, like, trying to carve out some kind of, like, blackness that's separate from, you know, like, this is where Fanon's helpful, you know? As if it's kind of like a mirage. It's kind of like this constructed blackness that people don't necessarily identify with. Like black Americans don't necessarily identify with like, until like it ends up being kind of um, uh, contrived. Well,
0: yeah. Sort of, except that like what's... So the rejection of the show is that it's not black enough.
1: Well, that's the other thing. It's like,
0: like oh, what do you mean? Like, ew, like the, these girls were like... Mm, like black homosexual men like touching kissing. each other, kissing. I was like, what the fuck? Like that's not us.
4: Oh, so like homosexuality's at odds with blackness or something. Well, so then there you're just getting the like nation of Islam, like super conservative, you know, um traditional. I don't know, it's like it's all a construct, isn't it? So like isn't the question what is blackness if they're just assuming that this or that is black? or authentically black, or not authentically black. Like, doesn't that beg the question? But then the
1: show seems to actually confuse the notion that such a thing can be. Like, I think that that's where some of, like, the interesting parts of the show were like, it was clear about, like, what is blackness is not, like, an answer they were like, completely willing to give. They're just giving you this sort of, like, prismatic, like, different colors or shades of blackness or something. Sort of different perspectives on it. I think that that's, like, one of the big things of the show that I liked, that it wasn't giving me one straight-up answer about it. Also, because Afrofuturism also comes from like Pan-Africanism. It's not just an American phenomenon. Like this films, this stuff is also coming from like African countries itself. Which, right, people in Africa might not identify the same way as like African Americans do about their blackness. Like, there's a different history in place. Colonialism has a different role. I don't know where I was going with that.
0: I don't know if it's a like... satisfaction of politics. Oh, Meaning okay. the
1: question of a satisfaction of politics. Like, really, right? If it's Like, African nationalism does seem to be, like, also a a running theme, although not in everything, but it's often there. Pam, you probably know a lot more about this because I know you've looked at it. But, yeah, so African nationalism plays a role as sort of, you know, uniting subjectivity between sort of black people. But the show Random Acts of Flyness seems to me to, like, not give you a straight-up answer about it, which I like. There's not, like, this direct authoritarian, like, definition of it. What are you looking for? You're making like noises with the paper. I'm looking the... at.
0: I was looking at this this manifesto of Afrofuturism, this this Mark Derry thing. And when he's interviewing Samuel R. Delaney, uh, he's asking him about like the politics of like science fiction writers and stuff. Because he's at first like, oh, isn't this like a libertarian imagination? Isn't this like a right wing thing? Doesn't this come from like California libertarian technocrat people? And Delaney's like, I don't know what you're talking about, like. They were a really famous group from coming out um, of the Ipsil, uh, so the the youth of the Socialist Party of America, that had like a group of science fiction writers, which apparently were like very famous. I was trying to find the name of the science fiction writers, the Future, the fut- Futurians, I think something like this. Anyway, and I was just kind of struck, like in the. You know, this is a black science fiction writer who's saying this, right? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, when I think of science fiction writers, I think of, like, these Trotskyists and Stalinists. And the arguments within the science fiction writers were about, were you a Trotskyist or were you a Stalinist? And, of course, that shit is lost now. But then it's, like, weird now that this guy is, like, Terrence Nance in this Random Acts of Linus show is, like putting people, like, on the first footage, the historical footage that's on the show, it's, like, black people in the 60s waving, like, the little red book and then, like, an image of, like, Lenin on a bed. But he doesn't know what it means, right? Right. Because he can, like, just quote the aesthetics without knowing the political content. But then when I read this 1994 text, it's like they had some connection that, like, when you talk about the future... And when you're talking about, like, creating, like, the possibility of a future that you were going to, like, talk to these communists. Socialists. Or socialists. Right? right. Um, and, like, that that doesn't really seem to be present, though, there. Which is why when you ask, like, do you think this is, like, a critical art form or something, I really don't know what to say. Because I don't... I think it's just kind of reproducing a kind what of What does it mean
4: to be a critical art form? What does that mean?
0: I don't know. Like, what does it mean to be a critic? What do you mean when you say that? Like posing a critique or something but isn't that something that politics does and not art
1: like i don't know there's definitely a period in the history of 20th century art especially after the post-war period where there was such a thing as like critical art and this is like the new avant-garde moment post-war there's of art that is critical of society art that itself adopts the failure of politics right so it becomes like there is a like this is a very basic point but there is a line between sort of the decline of the left and the death of the left and the increasing quote-unquote politicization of art where art basically begins to adopt the critical standpoints towards art practice itself, towards art institutions, like perfect example of critical art was institutional critique, right? Whoa, right like, critique slow down, museum. slow down, slow
4: down, please. <laughs> the
1: institutional critique is like a perfect example of this where sort of artists themselves started targeting museum institutions as one example of sort of critical art, but that also kind of died off, I think in the period around the nineties and there was sort of new forms of quote unquote critical art, but I think also be- begins becoming diluted over the last like few decades.
0: So do you use just, when you say that, do you mean like art that seems to have some kind of political agenda? Uh, not only, right? But
1: I think that m- for the most part, that's what it looks like today, critical okay. art, like Tania Bruguera, the Cuban artivist, right? There's terms as artivism. Right.
0: right. So I don't think... Well, I don't know. I think this could be like the aesthetics of artivism or whatever, but it's too weird to do it effectively, which is why it's interesting.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Because it's too... like it, it, I mean, literally, it's a lot of images and sound and strangeness coming at you. So even if you try to put your finger on it and be like, there's the propaganda... There it is, right? Like, yeah, like, oh, there's Don Draper telling us not to think the white thoughts. There's the propaganda. And then he's like, Terrence Nance is in front of his computer editing the work. And then he's getting a message by his partner. And they're like, I don't know about this footage. And you're like, oh, wait, I thought I had the propaganda. But now this is some weird shit that's happening
1: but this is actually a very common trend i would say in a lot of contemporary art especially art for people who are millennials or in their 30s now in the late 20s where basically the art itself adopts the potential critique that the art is going to get and already puts it into the work and so that moment of like the other girl messaging and being like well you're just focusing on white people it's 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 literally a tactic that a lot of contemporary art uses where it already introduces into the work It's potential critique.
0: I I also thought that it was like a way of showing us, we're not sure why we're making this shit, but here it is, right? Like we ourselves are making things that we don't know and we're not sure, but here it goes. Because otherwise the skit is like super certain of itself. It's got a big name actor, you know, it's like John Hamm, it's like super well produced, the graphics are beautiful. And then all of a sudden you're like in some, just like a regular guy's apartment, looking at this this TV thing and trying to figure out whether or not you want to show it. But yeah, I, I guess it could be just playing it safe or whatever, but I don't know. There's a lot of things about the show that doesn't really feel like they're playing it safe. So but no, we'll no, see. I um I think I guess it
4: like the the sort of montage aspect of it was kinda cool. That was fine. <laughs> I guess I just thought that the if there were politics in it or like social commentary, it was just kind of boring. It's like oh yeah, white all white people hate Muslims. Oof, whatever. All right, sure. <laughs> you know, like okay. You know, and then it's like yeah, the the people on that podcast you're talking about. You know, it's like their only critique of it is that it wasn't it wasn't more simplistic on the race yeah. question again and again. It wasn't just being like white people want to kill black kids. Like, only black people get hurt by police. (laughs) Like, that's what, that's their issue, is that it wasn't more like that. So it's just like, all right, you just want to watch something that kind of supports or bolsters whatever you already think. I don't know, it's just, that's why it was boring to me. But the montage aspect of it, I mean, aesthetically, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of cool. I think if it was, like, freer to, to talk about different stuff in different ways maybe that would have made it more interesting
0: but i think this is what i'm saying like okay so i don't expect people to have good politics today but the form of the show is like attempting to go beyond the certainty of his bad politics it's like it's trying to do something that the shitty politics can't do and it fails because you know like i don't know like what do we want it to do i mean like really it's like you can't like art's not gonna fucking save the world sorry guys Otherwise shit is just boring. Like these, these black girls in the podcast or whatever, it's like that's the aesthetics that they're down with because that's what most of the shit is. That's why they expect it to be like that. And somehow this is like fucking me up a little and I'm kind of in it for the ride. Even though like every other skit I'm like, no, like why, why Michelle Obama? Like what the fuck, you know? Listening. are you still there so you should send us your questions
1: we want to answer your questions in the podcast
0: yeah so record them just you know send, send them, them
1: on facebook gmail
0: whatever, whatever. just you know <laughs> just send them to us we want them yeah and we'll okay. answer. cool
1: ciao bye